0: so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European
1: Association for Evolutionary Political Economy.
2: Welcome to these new episodes of New Books in Economics, part of the New Books Network. I am Andrea Bernardi, your host from Oxford Brookes University. Today, I'm here with Professor Peter Betke from George Mason University to talk about his very important new book, published in 2018, um, this is uh, Frederick Hayek, the is Economics, Political Economy and Social Philosophy, published by Palgrave Macmillan. Welcome, uh, Peter. Thank you for being with us. Please, can you tell us about your current and past uh, affiliations?
1: Well, th- first, thank you very much, Andrea, for having me on. Um, it's a, uh, I'm really happy to be here with you to talk about these ideas. Um, uh, so I uh, have been a professor at George Mason University since 1998. Uh, Prior to that, uh, I spent most of my uh, time uh, after earning my PhD at New York University, where I was an assistant professor uh, from 1990 until 1998, and then I moved to George Mason, so
2: Okay, let's move to your book, a very interesting book, uh, which is made of 11 chapters. Maybe I can briefly mention those chapters, which are clarifying some misconceptions about Hayek. Hayek, and overview of his life and work, the anatomy of an economic crisis, Hayek on market theory, Hayek and market socialism, the false promise of socialism and the road to serfdom, genuine institutional economics, the political economy of a free people, Hayek, Epistemics, Institutions and Change, the reconstitution, Reconstruction of the Libra Project, and finally, the Hayekian Legacy. Um, maybe I would start with a very simple question, which is, in your preface, you say, you write... That this is not a proper intellectual history. So why not? And how would you define your contribution on Hayek, which, by the way, is uh, if I am correct, is one of your main research interests, and there are several publications of yours on him.
1: Yeah. Um, so I think uh, it's a great question, and I, and 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 thanks for asking me to clarify that. I'm a big uh, advocate of. Uh, the Cambridge uh, School of Intellectual History. So I, putting ideas in context, um, following Quentin Skinner. Um, and I think that that's the proper way to do intellectual history, is to uh, spend a lot of time doing the context, fitting people in the context of their times, uh, um, you know, working on the context of the debates, the sort of issues that, that dominate them. I think that explains it. This is more a presentation of an intellectual and the arc of his career and how he takes several different bites of an apple at trying to solve a what he considers a fundamental problem and what we can learn from his uh, intellectual journey for the way we do economics and political economy today. And so over the course of those 11 chapters, what I'm trying to do is capture this arc of his career, which starts, I divide it into four segments of his career, which is the first segment is that he is um, occupied with economics as a coordination problem. And that's where he makes his main contributions to economic science and and how his arguments develop in that. And then his next stage is what I call the abuse of reason stage, which is he's frustrated with his efforts at solving the problems in economics as a coordination problem. And he thinks his colleagues and peers have somehow been uh, blocked or blinded to be able to see the insights he's trying to get at with respect to institutions and, and knowledge. And so he examines the philosophical underpinnings of the enterprise of, of the social sciences. And that leads him to this abuse of reason project. And once in, he clears that up, then he moves to the issue of uh, reconstruction of the liberal project from the, from Mill and from Smith to Mill to now the way he's going to do it. And then his final thing stage, which I don't talk much about in the book, is at the very end of his life where he moves to a kind of a discussion about the philosophical anthropology of man and what that implies for what our evolutionary past implies for our current ability to adopt uh, things like justice and liberal principles. And so it's that arc of that career, all of which is constantly being revised, but revised from a common theme, so there's coherence between it, but constant novelty, and it's playing that out that I try to do in the book, as opposed to a proper contextualization of Hayek, the man, his times, and all of that. I'm really talking about uh, even not even a genealogy of ideas, but more or less the evolution of a set of ideas in which, um, you know, the past and the present are kind of blurred uh, in a lot of ways. If I can <laughs> if I can clarify, maybe for the readers, this may be too insider baseball for the more general people. But in the back of my head, you wouldn't see it from reading the book. But in the, the back of my mind, as I was writing the book, I was constantly trying to negotiate between uh, two articles that are written by famous economists. One of them is George Stigler's, where George Stigler asked the question, does economics Have a useful past. What he means by that is, are the ideas that were talked about 50 years, 100 years, you know, 500 years ago valuable to us today? And he argues no, that whatever was good in the past has been absorbed into the future. And so I don't like, I didn't like that answer because I think it's too Whiggish of an interpretation. Deirdre McCloskey asks, does the past have a useful economics? Meaning when we study the past, can we learn about what might be adjudicating of what are good economic theories and what are bad economic theories uh, from our study of the historical record? And she argues in the affirmative, and I agree with that. And so what I wanted to try to do was tell the story of Hayek Answering the affirmative to both of those questions and see how the arc of his career makes sense precisely because of this disjuncture between where his argument was going and what people thought the lessons they were learning from the experience and how you weave back and forth between those.
2: Well, this was a very sophisticated and erudite answer to my question. Thank you very much, Peter. Sorry about that. Yeah. No, very, very interesting. And and by the way, there is, uh, beside the the history of economic thought, there is now a revival of uh, the importance of looking uh, at the past in economics. As in general, and also yeah. in my own discipline, which is organization studies. So it's a very interesting point of view. Uh, but now for the non experts, uh, for the people that will listen to this podcast and who are not economists, uh, can we try to contextualize uh, um, the, the the role of hayek and maybe also within the Austrian School in economics? Uh, and uh, then uh, we move ahead after we have uh, sure. simplified uh, his character. Thank you.
1: So I think that if if um, Hayek, Hayek is trying to take Adam Smith and David Hume and bring them into the 20th century, um, and so it's spontaneous order or invisible hand style of reasoning – um, in which uh, the way to understand that is Adam Smith never said that individuals pursuing their self-interest will always generate a publicly desirable outcome. It was, it, In fact, he gives you examples in the Wealth of Nations of how individuals pursuing their own interest will actually generate bad outcomes. Uh, as well as what under what conditions would they generate publicly desirable outcomes. And so Hayek is the modern developer of that, trying to once again get people to uh, appreciate the awe and, and beauty of market transactions and commercial society and uh, what the implications of that are. And so that's, uh, and the Austrian school in general is is trying to do that with the with the tools of modern marginalist thinking, so they're they're classical economists, but they haven't shifted off of the classical, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of vision of the of the thing. They've just used modern tools to try to better answer the classical positions, um, and I think that's uh, the best way to understand. So they're they see the coevolution of of economic science and the rise of liberalism, uh, Western liberalism. And they're trying to understand the interaction between the two of those.
2: Perfect. Let's move to a hot topic. Why Hayek became such a controversial uh, intellectual and such a controversial character?
1: Well, I think that uh, two reasons that happened to that. Uh, So I don't think he was a, he was a, a controversial scientific figure from a very early on in his career because uh, Keynes was his senior and he crossed swords with Keynes as soon as he moved to the English context. But Hayek and Keynes actually were friendly with each other. In fact, during the war, um, Keynes arranged for when LSE... Uh, was uh, evacuated out of its offices in London. Uh, they moved to Cambridge and Keynes was the one who handled all of the stuff to make sure Hayek had, you know, the right kind of office and living environment and all of that. And so they were very, uh, you know, friendly with one another, even though they were intellectual adversaries. But after Hayek wrote the the road to serfdom, uh, in many ways it became, uh, people didn't read it as much as, they, it became a coffee table book, right? It became a kind of rallying call for a certain political, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, movement, um, not necessarily, you know, always understanding what Hayek had to say or the subtlety of his ideas, but nevertheless, they understood, you know, uh, the broad brush of that. Hayek himself, I think, um, you know, there were, there were efforts to popularize the book And some of them were very cartoonish and it's not clear that Hayek stopped, you know, or tried to prevent that. Um, and so his fate of becoming of, uh, infamous as opposed to famous, um, probably, um, starts in the 1940s. And then when the, the constitution of Liberty is published, uh, again, a book that's, you know, over 500 pages and has so many footnotes that, you know, you can't believe, but, you know, people would jump on that and, and, uh, you know, use it as, again, as a coffee table book. And so I I don't think that um, it's wrong to view him as controversial because he became a kind of an iconic figure of the opposite of the ideological winds of his time.
2: Uh, at the beginning of the book, uh, you also mention one of the controversies, which, are, um, which is the, the relationship between uh, politicians and uh, uh, Hayek. And you write that perhaps this political influence is overestimated because you write that his relationship with those in political power was remote at best, as Hayek was never a political consultant to any leader in power. He was always a critical scholar who tried to speak truth to, to power from the outside. So probably even the most um, controversial aspect of um, the, the a common reading of his life, in fact, is overestimated and over, uh, over debated more than should be. What do you think about this? So
1: I, th- I'm, I'm making a kind of a distinction there between. A scientist, an intellectual who's outside of the actual organs of government, who is making various different commentaries on the day, as opposed to people that actually go and work inside of government and advise people. So in Thatcher, Reagan, and and, and whatnot, Hayek was no doubt someone that people pointed to, but it's not like he was ever consulted or advised with. Um, if you compare that to, say, Keynes, um, who in fact headed up the Economic Council in uh, the United Kingdom, or if you look at you know, someone like Stan Fisher at MIT in the post-World War II period, he's trained uh, a, a ridiculous number of central bankers, right? And, and he's been a central banker himself. Or for that matter, Arnold Harberger, right? Who you know basically was an advisor and and whatnot to governments in Latin America. Hayek is different than that in the sense that he never actually had that kind of role, uh, never got paid to be a consultant to a government in that kind of role, and he always was just like an academic writing, basically academic articles and books and uh, an occasional op-ed. You know, here or there. Um, and, and so in that sense, he was not even like John Kenneth Galbraith, right, who was an advisor, uh, you know, actual ambassador to India. Right. Um, and so he was not part of anyone's brain trust. That's kind of what I mean by that.
2: Oh, that's very interesting. So even if uh, Margaret Thatcher had these books uh, in his uh, bag, uh, but he, yeah. he, he never, he's never been in uh, in the cabinet office or nearby. Very good. Right. So but- if I
1: could just clarify, like, so Marge- Margaret Thatcher did hold up the Constitution of Liberty. She did, you know, shake it and say, "This is our Bible," right? She did do that. <laughs> but I, 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 it's unclear to me that Margaret Thatcher actually or. Keith Joseph or any of the other ones actually really understood the subtle argument that Hayek was making, but it was the coffee table book that they could rally around.
2: (laughs) Very interesting. Um, Well, talking about inaccuracies, uh, the beginning of the book, you list not one, but 10 main scientific misconceptions of Hayek's work. Um, for example, uh, I don't know, Hayek was um, categorically opposed to government action, or Hayek represented a slippery slope argument toward totalitarianism in the road to serfdom and so on. Um, like, do you want to mention a couple that you think are the biggest uh, misconceptions?
1: Well, let's just stick to those because since you raised them up, I mean, several of them in that list are that you give me, uh, that I give, and then you repeat it back to me, uh, um, are, I think, very important to sort out. But let me just focus on the two that you gave me, uh, given our time. So Hayek is explicit uh, from the 30s uh, uh, through the, the 80s that he wants to have a positive program for laissez-faire and that the biggest mistake that was made by the classicals and then the 20th century advocates for liberalism was to have what he calls, and this is his direct words, a wooden conception of laissez-faire. By that he means a very rigid and unyielding, uh, you know, conception a uh, bright red line in the in the sand, rather than the idea that you have um, general principles of which the application of which isn't more of an art than it is a science, and that uh, we shouldn't focus all of our energies on first principles. Now, what a positive agenda of laissez-faire is, is very difficult to figure out. I mean, this has been a puzzle that has vexed Henry Simons, who wrote a book on that. Uh, Walter Lippmann, in his book, The Good Society, focuses, if you read that book today, it's all about the agenda, the agenda, the agenda. And yet it's unclear what that is. Lionel Robbins, in his book on the theory of economic policy, uh, again, the agenda, the agenda, the agenda. But it's unclear, actually, what that means if you compare it to, say, a Keynesian agenda which is a very straightforward agenda, right? I mean, if you think about a Keynesian, again, this is insider baseball, but for economists, but if you just think about a standard Keynesian cross, right, and the traditional like old school Keynesianism, you have a very straightforward policy response to things, which is fiscal policy is necessary in order to stimulate the economy. So you don't worry about balancing the budget, you worry about balancing the economy using the budget and and that's, you know, a very positive thing. It's unclear that Hayek or the other classical liberals had such a clear-cut uh position to hold uh in their position. And so he's against the laissez-faire woodenness, but yet at the same time he's against the interventionist state. And so where do you find that agenda? And so I think this is a subtle point. On your second question, which was about the slippery slope, this relates because Hayek doesn't argue that any intervention will lead inevitably to a dictator, though of course that's what you know people read it as. What his argument is, is a instability argument because of the the uh incoherence or incongruence inco- between uh means and ends. So if you think about a standard economic argument about rent control or minimum wages, right, the argument is, is that you want to help the least advantage in society. So you want to provide more housing for the least advantage by having a rent control. And then the unintended consequence of that is a shortage in rental units. And so as a result, the people who are least advantaged are the ones who get hurt the worst because they're the marginal uh, you know, uh, demanders of the service. And they're the ones that get knocked out of the market. And so people who are advocating the minimum, the rent controls to help the lease advantage are frustrated. And now they're forced with a choice. They can now try to go after other restrictions on the market, or they can free up the market and allow the market to uh, you know adjust and adapt and supply the services for individuals. So if you think about a modern tragedy in the United States, say for example the homeless problem in San Francisco or something like that, you know we're going to have very complicated debates about that. And what Hayek is just sort of pointing out is that we have to be very weary of when we uh, engage in. One set of activities which leads to frustration, how we're going to respond to it because we might in fact compound the frustrations with further controls and then further controls, but there's no inevitability that we're going to continue to control until we're all you know subject to the gestapo or something like that, but that's how people thought he was making an argument you know if you you just make one concession to the to government intervention, the next thing you know you're you're in you know being marched. Uh, into a into a camp, and that is not his argument.
2: I see. And talking about misconceptions, uh, Hayek is not the only one uh, that suffered the misconception. For example, Keynes himself. Yeah. Uh, maybe we can list. We can list even more than ten misconceptions. Um, sure. And um, after all, uh, um, after all, uh, Keynes uh, was uh, a liberal himself. So even if today Keynes yeah. uh, and his. Uh, um, Uh, Work is mentioned by the left and the far left, uh, for example, in contemporary political economy debates. uh, um, uh, I'm sure the Keynes would would not agree on on the misuse and misconceptions of this work. So, what's what's what can you tell? Can I I just say something about that
1: real quick? Because I think. You know, yes. first analytically, uh, Keynes has a lot of really brilliant ideas in terms of having to do with, uh, you know, basically uncertainty and, um, you know, the fu- and dealing the imagined futures and investment in um, in this in the future and all of that. So Keynes himself is is uh, uh, ensnared in the dark forces and time of ignorance and how we can you know, muddle our way through that through various different institutions and practices. I think it's brilliant. Second thing is that the debate in Britain over market socialism is much more fruitful than we have allowed it to be because Hayek's adversaries in those debates, uh, not Longa, but Lerner, Dickinson, Barbara Wooten, all of them, they were Liberals in their politics, like Hayek, but they were socialists in their economics because they thought that the period of the 30s had demonstrated that the laissez-faire economy suffered inexorably from problems of monopoly exploitation and of instability of business cycles. And so the way they put it was that they were socialists in their economics because they were liberals in their politics. And so that's why the debate in Britain is much more civil than in the U.S. about these issues of socialism and capitalism during that that time, because in Britain, it's an intramural debate between liberals. And so then it's a question just clearly over means, not over ends, whereas in the U.S. it became interpreted as a debate over ends and not necessarily just the means. And I think that probably teaches us a lot about how we engage in debate.
2: Ah, that's a very important clarification. Thank you very much. Great. Um, but well, later in the book, uh, um, you we learn about the importance of uh, the notion of institutions for Hayek and his approach to economics. And here there is another little paradox, which is uh, uh, even many contemporary. Institutional economists dislike Hayek or do not fully recognize uh, his view of institutional economics. Can you explain this
1: so a central argument I try to make in the in the book is that um most institutional economists in the post nineteen fifty era develop their ideas by focusing on how alternative institutional arrangements impact the incentives. That individuals face. Sometimes they'll talk about the incentives to acquire information, and so it seems like they might be talking about the kind of ideas Hayek was getting at. But they're treating information in a very flat and commodity-like idea. It's it's like you know information is is a little bits and pieces that we want to gather and collect. Whereas what Hayek was trying to get at is that what I call his epistemic institutionalism, which is that knowledge is a product of the institutional context within which the activity takes place. If you take away that institutional context, you don't have that knowledge. It, it's not that the knowledge is costly to get. It's not that the knowledge is uh, just now too complex you know, and dispersed. It's that it doesn't exist at all. It's um, And so this contextual nature of our knowledge is what Hayek is trying to get at. And so as a result, there's a constant, in many ways, a kind of misappropriation of Hayek because we're trying to force fit him into a framework which his own ideas are pushing or agitating against. The most obvious of these is trying to force him into – a, a model of perfect competition to understand how he understands the spontaneous order of the market, but his whole theory is anti-perfect competition. And so to go back to to uh, your Keynes invoking, Hayek suffers the same fate as Keynes, which is except Keynes, of course it's it's a more famous uh, fate, which is that the hydraulic Keynesianism or the ISMLM curve is probably something Keynes would have, you know, completely rebelled against, let alone large scale macro models, like when Tinbergen and whatnot, you know, I don't know if you know this story, but when Tinbergen, you know, first sent Keynes, uh, you know, the first example of the of the large scale macro models, Keynes's response was uh, supposedly along these lines. He said, you know, uh, Jan, some people, uh, you know, want to get on with the task of just doing other people want to ponder whether or not the task is worth doing. I want to ponder the, t- whether or not this is worth doing. You want to get on with the task of just doing it. Uh, um, so Keynes himself suffered a fate where, you know, maybe the Keynesians were not Keynes. And I think a similar idea about Hayek and knowledge and the use of knowledge, I mean, the use of knowledge, I point this out in the book, the use of knowledge was picked as one of the top 20 articles ever published in the American economic review uh, in the first hundred years of the American economic association. And not only that, but among Nobel prize winners. Now this is a little old now that data was done. uh, What I probably about four years ago, but at that time among Nobel prize winners in their Nobel prize speech the only person who received more citations was Arrow. So it was Arrow and then Hayek, even more than oh. Samuelson, more than, you know, uh, and so it's amazing in the sense of Hayek, but yet Hayek hasn't so he's affected the DNA of economists, right? All economists know the use of knowledge in society essay, but the way they understand it is not exactly you know, the way Hayek understood it. And so I think this misappropriation of Hayek, especially among even institutional economists, means that there's this missed research opportunity, which I'm trying to encourage young people that are coming into economics to maybe pursue and slightly, uh, you know, shift that. But I don't mean it as Hayek has exclusivity. It's all about combinatorial thinking. How do you mix Hayek with North and Williamson and Hayek and Buchanan and the Ostroms. And this is all I'm trying to do in the book to sort of suggest to young people that there's this research program inspired by Hayekianism, not necessarily Hayek. Like this goes back to my intellectual history point. So I want to get people excited about where Hayekianism could go rather than where it was and how it was limited to this particular you know, historical figure.
0: Slash NBN 50 to get 50% off.
2: Very interesting. Uh, now I would like to move a bit ahead in time. Uh, I was thinking that perhaps uh, Keynes died before much of his work. Uh, yeah. Became famous and implemented. And instead, uh, maybe Hayek uh, uh, died uh, after already something, or if not much was visible of his influence in both North America and Europe. But he died before something very important. Uh, well, he died in 1992. He died before the very recent and astonishing development of China. And when I mention, when I say development, I mention not only I mean not only economic growth, but also. Uh, what we can define human development, so a great uh, steps forward in terms of health, education, and to some extent also some kinds of freedoms. Um, so what Hayek would have said if he was alive today and he would he was able to uh, observe the, the current uh, characteristics of Chinese capitalism, uh, China remains a Leninist society with a strong central planning, uh, of course an authoritarian regime, Uh, but uh, embraced uh, almost entirely the idea of market economy and capitalism? What would he say?
1: So, I mean, that's a very complicated question because, you know, China is complicated, but uh, let me just uh, back up very quickly about Hayek, the man. So his last book was published in 1988, The Fatal Conceit, um, the draft of which was completed in 1984. And it's unclear how much Hayek, by 88 by the 1988 was aware of what you know was going on um, in in a certain sense and let alone so when 1989 comes along and the collapse of communism appears, whether or not you know he lived to see that but whether or not he, fully grasp that is a different kind of question, um, I think. And that goes for for China as well. I do think that one of the amazing things about China, which is complicated. So you asked me a a little bit about my background before. So half of my life has been spent in the history of economic thought and methodology of economics. The other half is in comparative economic systems. So I, I wrote my first three books was about the Soviet experience. I studied development economics. I've uh, been a, a principal investigator of a project uh, that had teams uh, throughout, uh, you know, the world studying development economics and whatnot. And uh, so China has fascinated me since the time I was in graduate school, because, uh, which was in the 1980s, um, because from 78 to 1985 uh that's the original efforts at reforms uh they failed in that and that was their effort to try to have uh, socialist accountability um and the simplest way to understand it I'm I'm being I'm taking a shortcut here but so understand it but the simplest way to understand it is that they the central authority said let's the state uh let the the state owned enterprises choose their own managers because we need them to like have accountability at the at the firm we we need to make sure they get squared away, and what they did from seventy eight to eighty five is the managers ran on giving pay raises to the workers, <laughs> so rather than controlling costs, they actually engage in activities that would ex- increase the cost and as a result, China's desperate situation continued to get worse in nineteen eighty five that's when Deng Xiaoping said it doesn't matter what color the cat as long as it catches the mouse. And that's when they changed around. And what they did was they adopted a a, a different revenues uh, program. And so what they did was they unleashed the the local uh, state enterprises. Uh, They could uh, retain their surplus because what they had to do was just kick a certain back to the central government. So the central government was no longer subsidizing them, but instead they were kicking back money to the central government. And as a result, the special the, the the state enterprises all had an incentive to grow, cut costs and expand because that's the way they would maximize their surpluses and that's what also led to the special economic zones, right, which led to this great growth. And China and India getting integrated into the global economy produce these kind of miracles that you're talking about, which is, uh, you know, in 2015 was the first time in human history that less than 10% of the world's population lived on less than $2 a day. You know, if you just go back to 1980, it's 30% of the world's population. If you go back, you know, 50 years earlier than that, it's over 50% of the world's population is living in in abject poverty we've we've uh we haven't fixed the problem of poverty we haven't fixed the problem of inequality i'm not suggesting that but what has happened is this amazing uh improvement of the lives of ordinary people mainly in india and china because of the integration into the global economy so i think i would put a slightly different twist on the way you put it which is that the cause of china's improvement is not, I would argue, its strong central political authority, that they've improved in spite of that, and that that strong central authority may, in fact, in the end, cause the inability for those great gains that they've experienced to be shared widely throughout the society. I mean, I think we're all watching China just like we watch Russia and India with great care, because in all of these cases— um, there's a lot of very troubling developments on the political front and on the economic front um, that have huge impacts on society.
2: Thank you for handling a very complex question. Very In fact, now I realize that uh, maybe it would have been necessary to speak two hours. to Yeah, to sorry. About yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, that is a big, big question. I, I, if I can give a reference, I do think the work by Barry Weingast Gene Oi who has a world development piece uh about the 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 uh original tax change in China in the 1980s but Barry Weingas has some papers in the 90s and they're called uh, uh federalism market preserving federalism and one of his examples and, and and he's a professor at Stanford and you can look him up uh one of his Uh, examples is China, and he calls it market-preserving federalism Chinese style. And I think it gives a window into what was going on in China during this period in many ways better than any of the alternatives.
2: Thank you very much. On on this series, we have recently interviewed uh, Yuan Yuan Hang, and she just published a book. Uh, The title is How China Escaped the Poverty Trap. After all, she provides an answer similar to, to what you also told us um, now I move to my final questions in the book you mentioned the famous uh Montpelier in <laughs> society, and this is now almost an obsession for many people. In particular, those that see the uh, the, the, the conspiracy of uh, neoliberal uh, people and policies and uh, associations everywhere, and having an impact on every pos- on every pos- um, uh, policy everywhere in the world. So my question is, uh, how how did it happen that uh, this became such? Uh, um, an obsession and such uh, uh, um, a commonplace, I would say. Uh, uh, what uh, a scholar of Hayek's uh, uh, answer to, to this obsession?
1: I mean, it's a great question. I should point out for your listeners so that uh, my ideas um, are treated and with the appropriate, um, you know, concern or whatever. I, I served as president of the Montpellerin Society from 2016 to 2018. And I was, I've been a member of the Mont Pelerin Society since I was a kid and I won the Hayek Award. Uh, so uh, way back, uh, you know, when, and so I've been a frequent uh, guest at the Mont meetings, as well as a presenter at the Mont meetings. And one of the things that's most striking to me is that when I read, presentations by people who, in fact, even I've been very friendly with throughout my professional career, like Phil Morawski, and I read presentations of the Mont Society, I don't recognize the society that he's talking about. Uh, now, let me explain that a little bit, because that might shock some people, Um I don't think the Mont Pelerin Society was a necessary component for Milton Friedman to have an influence in the worldwide worldwide set of free market reforms that took place in the 1980s. All right, uh Friedman was that powerful of an intellectual, right? I mean, if you look at the book Capitalism and Freedom and then Free to Choose, Free to Choose sold you know millions of copies of books was translated into so many different languages um, Friedman himself was was as capable as getting the Nobel Prize from his peers as he was as appearing on the Phil Donahue show and whatever you know talk show he could be on and he went all over the world you know talking about his ideas again he did not join any government except for when he was a kid and he worked in the uh, during World War II. But after that, he was always just an academic and a public intellectual. But he was a uniquely talented public intellectual in the same way that, say, John Kenneth Galbraith was a uniquely talented public intellectual. He had a gift of writing. He had a gift of speaking. And so as a result, and and H- Friedman and Hayek, so Hayek founded the Pelerin Society to be a version of like the British Academy but for people who broadly agreed with liberalism, all right? But as the years wore on, more, you know, people were involved. And some of these people who were these liberals who were part of the academy got the opportunity to go into government, uh, work in, in Italy, for example, right? To go in, uh, you know, one of the great classical liberals was, uh, uh, I, uh, I, uh, was his, uh, um, what's his name, Iaudi? Yeah,
2: uh, Ionaudi, of course. Yeah,
1: yeah I- Inaudi and also Bruno Leone and other people, you know, they were all part of Mont Pelerin. They they, they had Inaudi, I think, had a role. Uh, Antonio, I'm um, trying to think of the monetary guy who was a monetary. He was part of these things. So they would be academics and then, you know, they would go into policy. And they also happened to be members of Mont Pelerin. At Mont Pelerin, it's not like they sat down and figured out the the blueprint, you know, for the governmental change. they They were having abstract conversations about the liberal society, the role of education, the way historians, you know, think about the books that Mont Pelerin produced, Capitalism and the Historians, right? They didn't produce like think tanks do, a blueprint for reform for the Reagan administration or, you know, that. And so you just have different people in different walks of their life. And Mont Pelerin has always been a debating society. What feeds the conspiracy I'll try to wrap this up. I, I know I'm – but what feeds the conspiracy is that in order for Montpellerin to have freewheeling conversation among people who felt that they were – their ideas were so out of step and – right? What they did was they adopted the Chatham House rules. So that meant that there's – you can't – it's the perfect thing for a conspiracy person because there's not recordings. Of what was being discussed, there's programs and whatnot, but n- never any kind of you know actual things unless people publish the papers elsewhere. And I again, I recommend lo- going and looking at the papers that are published elsewhere. You know, they're abstract papers about abstract questions about liberal the liberal society, as opposed to concretes. Now, did Mom Pellerin over the years rubbed shoulders with people that went on to become, you know, significant political actors in their own right or whatever. Of course, you know, when you're in a country and you're bringing Milton Friedman in, you know, the news media and everyone else wants to have him come and give a talk on. You know, monetarism, you know, and Milton Friedman walks in and he says, if you double the money supply, you'll double the price level. Don't double the money supply. It's not like he was brought there by the government to tell him that Milton Friedman, wherever he went, he was like, um, you know, I, I, as I've tried to say to people, Milton Friedman was like Michael Jordan, you know, <laughs> so wherever he went, everyone wanted to talk to him and do that. He didn't need Mont just like Michael Jordan didn't need the uh, the United States Olympic team going to Barcelona for him to be the most famous athlete in the world. He was already the most famous athlete in the world. And then he happened to be there with the Olympic team. So everyone was paying attention. And I think that's what's going on. And, you know, I mean, Mont Pelerin still exists. It's still a society of, uh, of, uh, of liberals debating very differences. Some are conservative. Some are more progressive. Uh, they generally share an idea of a limited government and a market economy. And they debate about the implications of that. And that's what the society is all about.
2: Very good. So now we know that if it is a conspiracy project, you are one of the top conspirators. <laughs> yes. But we, yeah, yeah. we never <laughs> yeah. know.
1: <laughs> yeah, and not very good because I go on, I, I you know, I, I am very transparent. So all of my stuff is available online <laughs> and, you know, all these things. Again, I'm having a podcast with you. So I'm not much of a conspiracy theor- a conspiracy promoter if I'm so
2: visible, right? So. That's fair enough. Yes, yes. Um, okay, so let's maybe wrap up our I would like sure. to ask you, uh, what is your next book? So what are you working on now? What is your current project?
1: So it's int- so I have a, a book that came out with Oxford uh, last year on public governance, uh, which is all about this issue that I just ended with about, you know, uh, how do you organize and have a – I'm trying my own effort at a positive program for laissez-faire. So how do you manage uh, – having public uh, institutions of public governance that actually fit with a democratic society and a market economy. Uh, That book is called Public Governance in the Classical Liberal Tradition, and that was published by Oxford. And right now I am in two different stages of finishing up uh, books, uh, one of which will be published by Cambridge. It's on money and the rule of law, and so it's about monetary policy. If we followed a rule of law approach as opposed to discretion, so it's really a continuing play on the idea of rules versus discretion. And then I have a book which uh, will be finished this summer, um, though it's it's basically written, but we're just revising it. That it's over several years with my colleague Rosalino Candela, uh, and it's a book on price theory, um, and it's meant to be a supplement to an intermediate or first graduate class and price theory, presenting a kind of uh, market process approach to price theory uh, rather than the sort of more equilibrium-oriented uh, approaches. Uh, the book on public governance, I should mention, was co-written with my colleagues uh, uh, Paul Alajika, who is a colleague of mine at George Mason and the Mercatus Center, and uh, Vlad Tarko, who is a professor at of moral sciences at University of Arizona, but. Um, these are great projects. I mean, I'm saying they're great uh, and I shouldn't, you, you're, you should be the one telling me they're great, but I've had so much fun exploring them. So in that sense, they're, they're great projects because they've really allowed me to uh, think through uh, and allow my intellectual curiosity to go in, in pretty exciting ways for me. So I'm, I'm very excited about them.
2: Wow, there is a lot in the pipeline. Uh, amazing. Uh, yeah. But for for the time being, congratulations for this book, yeah. which is a great book. Yeah. We spoke with Peter Betke on his uh, recent book, F.A. Frederick von uh, Ayek Economics, Political Economy and Social Philosophy. This was published in 2018 by Palgrave Macmillan. Congratulations and thank you for your time to be with us.
1: Thank you very much. I greatly appreciate you uh, t- talking with me. New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy. With lucky landslots, you can get
0: lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen
2: the bride and groom?
0: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.